Well, once upon a time, there was a farmer with two children, a son and a daughter. They ran a little farm about halfway up a mountain valley. A few crops, some livestock, and they managed to get by. There was no water on the property, but in the back room of the house, there was a pipe with a spigot on the end. All they had to do was open up that spigot, and cool, fresh water would flow freely and fill the sink. Now that pipe ran out the back door, across the back wall, across the meadow, and up high into the mountains to a little pool where a spring bubbled up out of the ground. As long as they went up to that spring every few days and cleared away the silt and debris that would accumulate, they enjoyed a steady flow of fresh, cool water, more than enough for washing and cooking and cleaning and, and watering their animals and, and the garden. Well, there came a time when the father had to go down to the city for a season. The kids were old enough to run the farm. Now they knew the routine, so he left them in charge. Everything went well for a week or so. But the kids got tired of making that trek up into the hills every other day. So they began to go less frequently. And after a while, they stopped going altogether. Well, now, every time they opened up the spigot, the water flowed a little more slowly. and It acquired kind of a funny taste to it. And, and after a while, it became just a muddy trickle. Well, the kids concluded the spring must be running dry, so they decided to use as little water as possible. And to their surprise, they, they were amazed at, at, at how little water they could get away with using at all. The, the crops could survive on the occasional rain that fell. The animals could drink out of some puddles or brackish ponds at the edge of the property. As long as they didn't drink too much or take too many baths, they hardly needed to go to the spigot at all. In fact, after a while, they began to take a certain amount of pride in how little water it actually took for them to run the farm. Well, eventually, the father came home and discovered to his shock the farm was in a terrible state. The crops were wilted and withered, hardly producing any fruit at all. The animals were skinny and listless, some of them sick. His kids looked terrible. Stained clothing, dirty, matted down hair. Kids, what, went, what happened, he said. And they tried to explain how hard they'd been working, how, how, the, how the weather had been bad, the soil wasn't as rich as it used to be, and besides, the spring had run dry. Well, hearing that, the father ran out the house, across the meadow, up into the hill to the spring, and sure enough, he found that that pool was just covered over with layers of leaves and sticks. Uh, the pipe was buried in a pile of silt. Water was oozing out the side of the pool and trickling down the mountainside, leaving behind a, a trail of green grass to mark the flow. The father shook his head, sad and disappointed, and turned to the kids and said, things could have been so much easier, so much better, if you had only tended the spring. I have a feeling I have told that story before around here. But it's one that I think we need to keep alive in our imagination. This spring, we're inviting God to, to do something more in our midst, more life, more love, more power. And what this little story suggests, that if we're going to experience more of all of those things, we need a steady flow of God's Spirit into our lives. That little parable teaches us two very important lessons. The first is that when we neglect the Spirit, we operate in our own strength. It is frighteningly easy to learn to get by without the Holy Spirit. To do life, to do church in our own strength, by our own wits and talent and hard work. 
Uh, we begin expecting less and less. We convince ourselves that we're doing fine compared to others, compared in light of the circumstances. Things are fine. And we forget how good and rich life and church were meant to be. Now, a couple of weeks ago, up at the Song of Serena, we got a taste of how good and rich life and faith and church can be. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to settle for anything less than that anymore. And so we're taking a pause this spring to refresh our understanding of and our relationship with the Holy Spirit. And without the flow of that Spirit into our lives, we can never experience all that God has in store for us. We had planned on doing this more series through the month of May. It feels so important. We're just going to keep on going and run right into June for a few more weeks. The second lesson we learn from this parable, the main lesson for today, is that in order for the Spirit to flow freely into our lives, we have to clear away the clutter of our sin the silt and the debris, we need to deal with our sin. In his letter to the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul writes, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now he writes that sentence in the midst of a larger section in which he talks about all varieties of of hurtful, destructive attitudes and behaviors and, and relationships. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. He's reminding us the Holy Spirit is a person, not an it, not a force, the third person of the Godhead. And when we sin, we we grieve the Spirit. We disturb our relationship. And that sin, like the silt and the debris in that pool, can choke the flow of God's Spirit into our lives and into our church. And so on a regular basis, we need to tend the spring to take a look at what's going on there, to deal with whatever clutter has accumulated and open up the pipeline again so the Spirit can flow freely into our lives. So far in our series, we've been talking about the conditions that allow God to do something more. So we've talked about expectant spirits, and we've talked about yielded hearts, and we've talked about an unashamed commitment. And today we're going to talk about a cleansed conscience about a deep inner sense that we are right with God and ready to receive whatever he has from us. And so to do that, I'd like to take you to Psalm 51. It's one of the most personal, profound psalms in the entire collection of 150. So you can turn to that if you want, Psalm 51, or follow along on the screens. Now, by the way, if you remember me telling that parable once before, you can tell me afterwards, all right? I asked the staff, some of them beforehand, if they remembered me telling this story before because I had a sense that I had, but I couldn't find it anywhere in my notes. And some of them said, uh, you know, they, they didn't remember it at all, and some of them said I had definitely told that story before. Now, that means one of two things. Either they're not listening very well, or they're listening to someone else. And neither one of those is very good. So you can tell me afterwards. Psalm 51. This psalm happens to come with a title like some of them do. A psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Now scholars agree that the titles were most likely added later so they don't carry the same weight of authority and inspiration as the actual text of the psalm 
But scholars also agree they're, for the most part, reliable and, and, and helpful. And it certainly seems as though this is a credible setting for this prayer that we're about to read. You remember the story? While David's army was off at war one spring, he stayed home. And he entered into an adulterous affair with Bathsheba, the wife of one of his warriors named Uriah. When Bathsheba became pregnant, David tried to cover up his crime by bringing Uriah home from the field of battle to have relations with his wife. He refused to indulge himself that way, Uriah did, while his men were off fighting on the field of battle. And so David came up with plan B, which was to arrange to have Uriah killed on the field of battle. Well, thinking that solved his problem, David took Bathsheba as his wife and went on as though nothing had happened. But Nathan the prophet was not about to let David the king ignore what he'd done. Because Nathan knew that what David had done would not only bring harm upon him, but it would stifle God's anointing on him as the king. And that would put the entire nation at risk. There's an important principle here for all of us. We don't have to be kings. When, when we sin, intentionally or unintentionally, when we, when we go our own way instead of God's way, when we dis disregard God's leading for our lives, we not only endanger our own souls and spirits and lives, but we also put at risk the lives of those we love and those we lead. Not only because they'll bear the consequences of whatever foolish decisions we make, but because we also now begin to hinder the work of the Spirit in our lives. And so we end up loving them or leading them in our own strength instead of God's. And, and that's just not enough. Which means if you're a parent or a grandparent, the children in your life are counting on you to be in a right relationship with God if you're going to love them the way they need to be loved. If you're a Bible study leader or a worship leader, if you're an elder or a pastor, the people you serve and lead are counting on you to be in tune with God's Holy Spirit so you lead them in good and right ways. If you have people in your life that you love who are far from God, their eternal destiny is at risk when the Spirit is not able to flow freely in and through you. Now, these are sobering thoughts. It doesn't mean we have to be perfect because we never will be. What it does mean is that when we do sin, when something does become between us and God, we need to deal with it. And that's what David's going to teach us to do here in this Psalm 51. We'll call it tending the spring. There's four little simple steps to it. And the first step is to recognize that we have a problem. Let's look at verses 1 to, one to 3. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Now, right from the get-go, David admits that he's got a problem. He's a sinner. In fact, he uses three different words to describe that sinfulness. The first word is translated here, transgressions. And that word simply means to, to cross a line or to violate a boundary. 
So we sometimes use the word trespasses to talk about sin, crossing a line. Now, you don't have to believe in the Bible. You don't even have to accept the Ten Commandments to know there are certain lines that you just shouldn't cross. When you take something that doesn't belong to you, when you say something that you know just isn't true, when you hurt someone physically or emotionally because you're angry, when you flirt with or fantasize about someone else's spouse, you've crossed a line. You violated a boundary. And those boundaries are there for our own good and for the good of others, those we love and society at large. And so when we cross them, we put ourselves and others at risk. The second word for sin is translated iniquity. Now this word describes a twisting, a perverting, a corrupting. It's taking something good and beautiful and twisting it into something hurtful and ugly. So when our delight in food leads to gluttony, when our pursuit of excellence turns us into workaholics, when our sexual desire drives us towards pornography, we spoil something good and beautiful. We mess up God's good gifts and world. The third word is simply translated sin. And what that means literally is to fall short or miss the mark. And so when we fail, when we fail to worship God or love our neighbors or nurture our children or care for the poor or be generous with our time, we become less than we were meant to be. And the world looks less like what God intended it to be. Crossing a line, messing things up, missing the mark. I won't ask for a show of hands, but does any of that sound familiar? If Psalm 51 is a mirror, do you see yourself? That's the first step in dealing with sin is to recognize that we have a problem. And the problem with us is that we're sinners. And as Andy Stanley likes to clarify, we're not mistakers, we're sinners. We do stuff. Stuff that's not good for us and others in the world. Thinking of ourselves as sinners is not a very popular concept these days. But if we don't recognize that, if we don't begin there, we can never possibly begin to experience the life and love and power that God wants to pour into our lives. Now, just a word here for those who might be visiting this morning. Maybe you're new to Grace Chapel just a couple of times. Maybe you're investigating the Christian faith. Maybe you're checking out church after a time away. I just want you to know, we are not sin-obsessed here at Grace Chapel. <laughs> right? We don't usually spend a whole morning talking about sin. Not because sin isn't real or important, but because, frankly, it's just not all that helpful to be obsessed with sin. Now, if you play golf, if you've ever played golf, you know what I'm talking about. Let's say you're teeing up a shot. It's a par three hole. And, and off to the right of the green is a great big sand trap. Now, as you're teeing up that shot, if you focus on that sand trap, guess where your ball's likely to go? <laughs> I can guarantee where my ball's gonna go, no matter what I think about. It's probably gonna go there. But if you focus on that, I once hit a ball into a, a water trap that was like here. 
you focus on that, the ball goes there. You're much better off focusing on the green, setting your sights straight ahead, and, and visualizing your ball rising from the tee in a beautiful arc and dropping gently onto the green of club's length away from the hole. Much better way to tee off. And it's a much better way to live the Christian life. Focus on the people, the church that God called us to be. Imagine what life can be like, what church can be like, what the world can be like. Think about what's good and true and beautiful. That's the way we tend to approach life and faith here at Grace. But we need to know there's a sand trap over there. And we need to know how to get out of it if we land there. And that's what David is going to teach us. The next thing we do is to confess our sin. Confess our sin. Verse 3, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. After weeks and months of covering it up, David finally acknowledges his sin. He owns it. My sin, my transgression. He not only acknowledges it, he agrees with God about what he's done and how wrong it was. And that's what it means to confess. To confess literally is to say the same thing as someone else. So when we confess our sins to God, we agree with God about what we've done. So here David acknowledges he's he's not only wronged Bathsheba and Uriah and the nation, he's actually wronged God. Sin isn't just breaking the rules, it's betraying a relationship. It's like any other relationship you have. If you hurt someone that you know or love or work with, there's a distancing in your relationship. Beyond just the impact of that moment, things begin to, something's come between you. You're less comfortable and free with each other. A chasm begins to grow between the two of you. Maybe you give each other the silent treatment and you grow farther and farther and farther apart. And the longer you leave it, the harder it gets and the wider the chasm gets. And it will keep going that way until someone acknowledges what's happened, until someone owns their part of the disagreement and you begin to move towards each other again. Well, the same thing is true of our relationship with God. The Spirit is a person When we sin, we grieve the Spirit. We distress the Spirit. We disturb our relationship. And and His presence, His power is not as easily accessible to us. So at some point, we have to confess our sin. We have to name it and agree with God about what we've done and the seriousness of it. And it could be any number of things. You're right, Lord. I've been neglecting my spouse. Yes, Lord, now that I think about it, I've I've been too harsh with my children. I've been selfish with my time. I've been stingy with my money. My language has been coarse and abusive. I've gotten involved sexually with someone outside the covenant of marriage. I'm drinking too much. I'm spending too much. I'm harboring bitterness or resentment in my heart. Could be any number of things, major or minor, but any one of them will come between you and God. And so until you name it and agree with God about it, 
it's going to clog up the pipeline. And so from time to time, we need to go to that spring, see what's happening, name what's happening, confess it, and then we can receive our forgiveness. And that's the third step on the way. Receive our forgiveness. David writes, Surely you desire truth in the inmost parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. The hyssop plant was used in ceremonial washing in ancient Israel. It was a brush-like plant that would be dipped into the blood of a sacrificed animal or maybe into some ceremonial water. Then it would be sprinkled on people or an object. And it would symbolize the cleansing of that object or that person. No longer unclean, but now acceptable to God and to the community. Life could be free and easy again, as if the whole thing had never happened. When David says, wash me, he's using the language of, of washing clothes, of taking dirty clothes and submerging them in water, rubbing them together, rinsing them again and again until the dirt washes away and the stains are removed. Think of every goofy laundry detergent commercial you've ever seen. Little scrubbing bubbles, magic stain lifting formulas, whatever it is, the, the miracle of seeing something dirty come out clean and bright, like, like as clean and new as newly fallen snow. Is it too soon to talk about the beauty of newly fallen snow? <laughs> Do I dare use that image? <laughs> but that garment can be worn again with pride and joy because it's clean. Now, people understood that the blood of an animal, the ceremonial water, that couldn't wash away their sin. Only the mercy and grace of God could do that. But those visual images of washing, of sprinkling, they, they help people understand and receive their forgiveness, much like baptism in our experience. Now, thankfully, we don't need ceremonies or rituals to wash away our sin. We don't have to beg for forgiveness. But we do need to receive it, to confess our sin and intentionally receive our forgiveness. There's an interesting thing about this verse here. Notice David talks about, uh, about the inmost place. When he talks about the inmost place, he's talking about the heart. And the actual word image behind that inmost place, you know what the picture is? The word picture behind it is of a spring bubbling up out of the earth. Just like that spring high up in the mountains. And so David's not talking about a superficial cleansing, a brushing off of the superficial dirt. This is a deep down cleansing. So at the very core of your being, the debris is wiped away. You're clean and fresh and new. And God's spirit can flow from a deep inner place to every part of your life and relationship. When we're, when we're cleansed, when we're forgiven, we're not just cleaned up on the outside, we're cleaned up on the inside. And are free to love and live and lead again in the power of God's Holy Spirit. So the way to deal with sin is not to wallow in it. Not to wallow in shame and guilt. Don't try punishing yourself. That's all been taken care of. Confess it, receive it, and then you're ready finally to begin again. And that's the last step. Begin again. David says, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. 
Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation and grant a willing spirit to sustain me. Now, when David talks about being cast from God's presence or not having the spirit taken away from him, he's not talking about losing his salvation. He's talking about losing his anointing, which happened to his predecessor, Saul, the king. He's not talking about losing his place in God's family. He's talking about losing his ease in God's presence. The joy and comfort of being able to relate to God on a moment-by-moment basis, to at any moment of the day, sing, pray, read, witness, serve, love, enjoy, to live each day. David doesn't want to waste one more day living apart from God. He doesn't want to risk one more day leading in his own strength. So he confesses his sin, he receives his forgiveness, and now he's ready to begin again. And he is confident that God can make that happen. When he says, create in me a clean heart, the word create he uses there comes right out of Genesis 1. If God can create something out of nothing... If God can take a chaotic mass of swirling gas and energy and create a finely tuned universe, God can take whatever mess we make of our lives and bring restoration and redemption and wholeness and wellness and carry on his good purpose. Now, we, we bear the consequences of what we've done, and David did that. But David also experienced great blessing. He still became the ancestor of God's Messiah, the Savior of Israel and the world, Jesus. Begin again. As I was writing this portion, trying to capture in words the the joy and the freedom of being washed and clean, the image that came to my mind was the memory of those baptisms up at the Sangha Serena a couple of weeks ago on One Church Sunday. If you were there, you remember We gave the invitation, and folks began coming from all over that great arena. All ages, all walks of life, all kinds of backgrounds, bringing different stories and different baggage and different sins, but they came forward. And one by one, they climbed into those baptistries. They were lowered down into the water and brought back up out of the water, sputtering, cleansed, full of joy. They held up signs telling their stories. Cleansed, complete, loved, set free, forgiven, joyful. On and on it went. Now, when we were planning the service and trying to anticipate how many people might come forward, we had no idea. And we jokingly said, well, if if a lot of people come, you know, and they they get baptized in their clothes, they, they could soak up all the water in there and... Now, we laughed about it just like you are. By the time the hundredth person came down, those tanks were getting low. (laughs) Those last few people, they had to really get pushed (laughs) to get all the way down. I'm not kidding. But they came up wet. They came up washed. They came up smiling with their hands in the air, ready to begin again by God's grace. Amen. Now, it was a great day for those folks and for those who loved them. They were ready to begin again. 
That doesn't mean they'll never sin again. In fact, I can pretty much guarantee <laughs> that they've fallen short, messed up, or crossed the line at least once since they were baptized two Sundays ago. And the good news is we don't have to be baptized every time. We just need to recognize the problem, confess our sin, receive that forgiveness, and then rise up and begin again. And that's why on a regular basis we tend the spring. We visit that spring from which life flows and we see what's going on there. And if there's sin, we deal with it. We clear it away. We confess it. We allow the water to flow and we begin living in newness of life again. Now, you can do that on, on a daily basis, beginning of the day, end of the day. Lord, here's the day. Show me where I went wrong and, and forgive me. It can be part of your weekly Sunday worship, whether we do it corporately or you do it privately in your seat. To every week, look back over the past week and say, Lord, just forgive me. Show me where I went wrong and forgive me. Every year, we have the season of Lent, 40 days to search out our hearts individually and collectively and receive forgiveness. Those are all good practices. But the truth is, any time you detect a slowing in the flow of God's Spirit, every time you feel a little bit of a hesitancy in prayer, a little bit of awkwardness in worship, discomfort in the way you're living, a lack of power in your ministry, pay a visit to the spring and see if there's not something that needs to be taken care of. Because once he had cleared away the dirt and debris from that little pool and opened up the pipe, her father ran back down the hill across the meadow into the house, into the back room. He opened up the spigot. And it coughed and sputtered a few times, but then the water began to flow, and pretty soon it was flowing cool and clear and full. He took a couple cups and filled them up with water and gave one to each of his kids, and they guzzled that water. And almost immediately they seemed refreshed. And then they began grabbing pots and buckets and anything they could find and filling them up. They spent the rest of the day running all over the farm, providing water for the animals, filling those troughs, and those animals guzzled that water as fast as they could fill them up. They sprinkled water on every one of those plants all across the field, and those plants almost immediately seemed to stand up straighter and greener. By the time they were all done, they stood in the afternoon sun, the three of them, sweaty and stained and dirty, and they poured buckets of water over each other laughing out loud, washing away all the dirt and disappointment and promising they would never again forget to tend the spring. And that's what we'd like to do for a few minutes this morning as we finish up our service. We're inviting God to do something new and wonderful and good in our lives and our church in the days and the years to come. And so we're taking this pause, saying, Lord, is there anything that's getting in the way right now? And that's what we'd like to do. So in just a moment, we're going to play some music and give you some quiet time to do some private reflection and, and just deal with whatever you might need to deal with as you talk to the Lord. Ask yourself, there's, if there's anything that's come between you and the Lord in recent days, is anything hindering the flow of God's Spirit in your life? It could be an unconfessed sin. Maybe something you've done or or something you've failed to do that, that you haven't really admitted to yourself or God. Maybe you've been covering it up like David did. Or maybe the Spirit just brought it to your attention this morning. Bring it to God. 
It could be some habitual sin, something you've been doing for a while, some attitude or behavior or relationship that you keep going back to. Maybe you've been living with it so long you hardly even realize what a big deal it is anymore. Or maybe you're feeling so trapped and ashamed you're afraid to even bring it up. Don't wallow in guilt and bondage. Bring it to God. Maybe it's a relational sin. Maybe you've hurt someone you love. Maybe something's out of order. Someone you work with, a brother or sister in Christ. We'd like to provide you with a few moments to search out hearts and deal with those things. So I'm going to pray. The music will begin. Uh, your campus pastor will step up and provide some space for you to do that on your particular campus or venue. And then we're going to finish with a great song of celebration and forgiveness. So let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for this psalm and the model it provides for us of a path to forgiveness and refreshment and new beginning. We are thrilled with all that you're doing in the life of our church these days, and we're eager for more of it. We surely don't want anything to get in the way. So, Lord, search out our hearts in these few moments. We invite your Holy Spirit to make this holy ground. We give you freedom to call to our attention whatever we need to pay attention to. And if there's sin there, to name it and confess it, receive your forgiveness so we can walk out of here fresh and new and free. And so we offer you these moments in Jesus' name, amen. Now, as we spend these moments here in Lexington, in the spirit of doing things a little bit differently around here, we're going to allow you some time to actually come forward if you feel like that would be helpful. If you're feeling there's something in particular you want to bring before the Lord and it's helpful to come down front, you can do that. You can just stand here and pray quietly before the Lord. You can kneel at one of the kneelers for a few moments if you want. You can just pray privately in your seat just as easily. If, if there's a relational issue and that person is sitting near you or maybe across the room, feel free to go talk to that person. Let's just give ourselves some time and space for about three, four, five minutes and then I'll come back and pray and we'll finish with a song together. So feel free. Come forward if you'd like. Stay where you're seated. Sing along or sit quietly. Let's make the most of this time. Turn my face. 
that if we confess our sins you are faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness so in that spirit Lord we have brought our sins before you this morning privately collectively we're thankful for the freedom to name them to face them thankful that you're willing to take them and bear them that your son went to the cross to pay the price for all of them that his blood cleanses us from whatever stain or dirt remains. May we sense that forgiveness this morning for everything we have brought before you. May we leave here feeling fresh and clean and new, ready to begin again as your people, individually and collectively. May your spirit flow freely in us and through us for your glory, for our joy, and for the blessing of people around. We pray it in Jesus' name.